She's a business mogul. Number one. And wellness expert. How can I help? And now Chantel Ray and her amazing guests are here to guide you on your wellness journey. Time to level up. Welcome to the Waste Away Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. And our title is how to debunk the gut myths and figure out how to get rid of the bloat. We all want to get rid of it. You've all been bloated at one time, and we are going to solve that problem today. So welcome, Phoebe Lapine. Thanks for having me. So I will tell you guys a really cute story. Before I was ever planning to have Phoebe on, I was just on Amazon and looking for books. Her book is SIBO Made Simple. I did find out I had some SIBO. And so we'll be talking about that today. But I bought her book without even, I never, like, I think she reached out to me to ask me to be on the podcast. Like, I don't think I reached out. Did I reach out to you or you reached out to me? No, I did. Yeah, Yeah, you reached out to me because I'm saying like, just so weird that timing. I think I bought your book and then you randomly reached out to me. I'm like, oh my gosh. So let's talk a little bit about first for people who don't know what SIBO is, let's really define it, figure out how you can figure out you have it and we'll go from there. Sure. So it stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And I think kind of one of the the first myths I'll about gut health is, you know, I think sometimes when things get distilled into layman's terms, we talk a lot about, you know, the good gut bacteria, bad gut bacteria. And what people don't realize is that primarily we're really talking about the large intestine. That's where kind of the majority of your gut microbiome lives. And while all the other areas of your digestive tract kind of have their own unique ecosystems, um, you know, that's where the bulk of it is. And the small intestine is not really an organ that's designed to have, you know, a huge population of bacteria. They don't really have a role in that leg of the digestive labyrinth. And what happens when, you know, those numbers exceed their normal quota is that bacteria then starts competing for your food resources. It's where you absorb the majority of your nutrients. And when bacteria eats your food, they release gas. And that gas is now much further away from an exit ramp. So it tends to get trapped there, can lead to really uncomfortable distension and bloating. And of course, a host of other IBS symptoms, you know, diarrhea, constipation, Um, burping is a weird one because again, you're just the back to, the gas is trying to get out any way it can. So sometimes it takes the other exit ramp. And um, then, you know, it can lead to leaky gut because of the damage that the bacteria actually cause to the integrity of the intestinal wall. And, you know, once that happens, there's just a whole downwind string of autoimmune symptoms that people could experience. It's a really tricky um, kind of subset of IBS There's research now that says over 60% of all IBS cases are actually being caused by SIBO. So it's important for people to kind of understand more about what it is and know that, you know, sometimes the conventional gut health wisdom of eating fermented foods and, you know, crushing legumes and fibrous seeds and nuts and taking probiotics. If you have kind of an acute issue like SIBO, those things could actually be making your symptoms worse. So what 
causes you to have an abnormal... So SIBO is when you have an abnormal increase in the overall bacterial population in the small intestines. And what what causes that? Like, give me some reasons of why all of a sudden you've got this abnormal increase in overall bacterial population. Yeah. So it's not a disease. Um, it's really just a sign that something has gone wrong in your digestive tract. Um, I mean, our body is a well-oiled machine. It is very well designed to neutralize, you know, the bacteria that's coming in through our nose and mouth every single day and make sure that no pathogen kind of takes hold. Um, so kind of one one big bucket for why this would happen is just, you know, the bacteria are not killed in the first place. So low stomach acid would be part of that matrix. Um, being immunocompromised since your immune system, you know, again, exists to ward off um, anything that's going to take hold. Um, and then the second bucket has to do with motility. So how um, this mechanism called the migrating motor complex works. And, you know, I've been writing about health and food for a long time, and this was not something that I came across in my everyday research. It was really only something I learned about when I started to research SIBO. And so this is kind of your street sweeper wave that cleans up after a meal. And you'll be interested to know that it only kicks in during a fasting state of 90 minutes or more. So leaving time between meals to get it to kick in is really important. And they, there's been a lot of research that has uncovered that a lot of the reasons why people get SIBO is because of some malfunction or breakdown in this migrating motor complex. Um, because if you think about it, you know, the small intestines is incredibly long and winding. There's a lot of opportunity for debris to kind of accumulate or for an opportunist like bacteria or fungi slash yeast to kind of pull off the highway and stay a while. And that migrating motor complex is primarily responsible for that not happening. So um, if it falls down on the job, um, and especially over time, you know, a lot of that accumulation can mean, you know, a backup of bacteria. And it could also mean, you know, a backup of food debris. So giving that bacteria a really consistent food source. What are the foods that you say, if you have SIBO or you think you might have it, that you say you have to stay away from the following foods? What would those be? Well, it's really variable. I mean, if you don't react to something, absolutely eat it. Um, but the main diet that gets kind of prescribed off the back end of treating SIBO, which is usually done with some sort of quote unquote kill protocol, so an antibiotic or an herbal antimicrobial um, these diet, this diet is called the low FODMAP diet. And it is literally the opposite of what any gut scientist will tell you to do to foster, you know, a healthy microbiome. And that's again, because, you know, these are your bacteria's favorite foods. So if you take them away, you're much less likely to have symptoms. Um, it's not that you are trying to, you know, starve the entire population. It's just a means of symptom control. So some of those foods include legumes, like I mentioned before, um, garlic and onion are kind of the trickiest in the low FODMAP diet to stay away from, but they tend to be, you know, kind of give people the most problems. Um, some other kind of healthy vegetables like cauliflower, um, can be caused a lot of symptoms for people. And then, uh, like certain quantities of dairy, the low FODMAP diet is interesting because it's quantity, quantity specific. So, um, 
it's harder to say like, these are the hard and fast foods to absolutely eliminate and more teaches you to kind of have certain problematic foods in moderation. Hey guys, I really want you to join our Intermittent Fasting and OMAD Facebook group. We're doing tons of giveaways right now for posting your before and after pictures and just for posting a question in there. We're giving away free protein shakes, some digest aid, all kinds of fun stuff. So please join our Intermittent Fasting and OMAD Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. Which it's so strange because for me personally... I know that when I eat a lot of garlic and onions, I feel great. So I don't oh. I don't feel bad when I eat garlic and onions. And I when I eat cauliflower, I don't feel bad. Now, beans or dairy, I never <laughs> feel good. Like if you gave me a bean, like I could eat one bean and like literally I would have so much bloat, it wouldn't even be funny. And dairy, like it's I really try hard to not have a dairy in my diet, but I will tell you it's very, very difficult. I will just, I never have gluten in my diet anymore. I pretty much, that's a very rare day that that comes into my diet. But when it comes to dairy, I will somehow justify it in some, some form because I like it so much. But that's a good example. You know, everyone's different and ultimately being strict in any of these diets isn't necessarily going to rid you of SIBO. It's just going to make you feel better. So if something, you know, doesn't cause any symptoms for you, keep it in, you know, kind of the biggest rule of gut health is to have as diverse a diet as possible, especially with all of the truly healthful plant foods and vegetables out there. Um, so there's the bar should be high for, for taking anything out for good. So I just got your book, so I haven't had a chance to make a lot of the recipes yet. So I want you to tell us first, the first question is, does your, in your book, those recipes, do you not have garlic, onions, beans, cauliflower, or dairy? Are those not even in your book anywhere as the recipes? Not in them at all. Not in there. Okay. So that's completely Most people can't tell, you know, it's still pretty vibrant. I think like one of the pitfalls of, you know, kind of IBS or uh, SIBO diets is just taking out so many plant foods, so many delicious vegetables, since for some people that can cause symptoms. And I really tried to, you know, just prepare them in a way that was more easy to assimilate, like cooking them, pureeing them, uh, adding lots of really, um, supportive ingredients like fresh ginger and turmeric and all these other healing foods. Um, but there's, there's also like a lot of really delicious comfort food recipes. So I think most people, um, will not notice that they are both low FODMAP and free of gluten, dairy, soy, and corn. (laughs) So tell me, what would you say that is your top three recipes that you have to make out of your book that you're like, these are the three best. Okay. There is this chicken tagine recipe, um, which is like a Moroccan stew. And it's got lots of incredible digestive spices in there. It's um, got lots of root vegetables for kind of like the fall, winter. And then really, you know, in transitional weather, it's such a solid, delicious recipe. Um, Then there's this 
Uh, actually, so there's actually a lot of plant-based recipes in the book. I'd have to say there are these quinoa sweet potato burgers that are delicious. I feel like, you know, when you take out garlic and onion, it just becomes so much harder to have any sort of prepared food shortcuts. And for me, like I always for lunch would like resort to a veggie burger, like from the freezer. And so these are actually great for freezing ahead of time, um, and making a quick, easy lunch. And then, there's this green detox soup that is really, really, really delicious. It, people might not think so, um, you know, just by looking at it because it is a deep, vibrant green, but it's just really a really simple mixture of zucchini, um, chard, and broth. And it's just incre incredibly anti-inflammatory and healing. So for me personally, when I have a soy-free, gluten-free, corn-free, dairy-free and refined sugar-free, that's how I feel like a million bucks. And so I'm wondering of why when I, and I have to, I guess I might have to try it where, cause I, I don't even know that I could not have uh, garlic and onions. Like I put so much garlic and onions <laughs> in everything. I couldn't, I literally don't even think I could imagine my life without it. Well, I'm a chef, so I completely agree with you. I was very reliant on it. And I have to say, I haven't, I can, you know, eat out and tolerate garlic and onion fine now. I pretty much eat everything now besides gluten, but I don't miss it in my cooking at home. You know, I think you kind of don't appreciate, you know, how much other flavor um, powerhouses can do for you, like spices and just cooking your food properly, like searing your protein so that there's a lot of flavor development, um, and, you know, caramelizing certain, um, vegetables doesn't have to be onion and garlic can be bell pepper, can be carrots, um, can be a little bit of fennel. Yeah. It's, it's really funny. It's more out of laziness than anything is that I noticed I just didn't miss it that much. And my food didn't actually taste, you know, like any more um, deficient from it. Hey guys, I'm so excited. My new book, One Meal and a Tasting is out now. And if you order the book on Amazon, just the regular paperback edition, if you go in and make a review, you will get the audio book for free. Send a copy of your receipt to questions at chantelrayway.com and you'll get the audio book right away. So I'd like, since you are a chef and to give us some really good tips. So if you said, okay, here's like kind of advanced, you know, but uh -huh. if you said, here's kind of five advanced cooking tips that you can do to make your food taste better, give us those. Okay. Um, well, I'll kind of um, expand upon some of the ones that I just told you. So if you're using spices, and I highly recommend that you kind of slowly build out your spice rack because you can just turn any one ingredient into, you know, five different dishes and keep things exciting, which especially on a limited diet, like a low FODMAP diet, you want to do because you don't want to be eating like, you know, carrots every single day. Um, but you can eat carrots every single day if you have, you know, the variety um, to flavor them in different ways, but never add spices directly to like a liquid broth. You always want to toast them in a hot pan. Um, that can be, you know, 
for normal people, normally cooking, like added to garlic and onion. Um, but essentially, you know, especially if you're starting with ground spices, um, you want to like kind of light that flavor on fire and, you know, make it come alive. Cause it's already a little bit anemic to begin with, you know, most traditional cultures that really rely heavily on spices, like we'll toast the whole spices in a dry pan, then grind them, then add them to a recipe. So, um, whenever you can add heat directly there and kind of create a little paste with some oil, that's great. Um, Number two, I guess this wouldn't necessarily apply to making your food taste amazing, but it's so important to me is like using fats in the way that they're designed to be used. Um, you know, people talk about healthy fats all the time. And of course there are like some junky fats out there, but ultimately a healthy fat, you know, is really only as good as the cooking temperature that you cook it at. So olive oil is incredible. It's an amazing healthy fat, but, you know, frying things in olive oil beyond its traditional burning temperature really does kind of denigrate the oil. Um, so for high heat cooking, I rely on coconut oil, avocado oil, um, ghee, and I use olive oil for more low heat cooking and raw preparations. Um, let's see, number three. I mean, again, I have to say, if you're someone who you know cooks a lot of protein, you can't be afraid of a hot pan and giving it a really good sear. I highly recommend um, to make that easier getting a cast iron skillet, um, that you can just season over time. It requires, you know, kind of less oil, um, to make it nonstick. I mean, it's naturally nonstick if you take care of it properly. And because of its like heavy weight and the way it radiates heat, you won't be like smoking out your home or your apartment. Um, and then getting that really beautiful color on your protein, like those are natural sugars developing. That is flavor. And that'll only add even more depth to whatever sauce you create off the back end. So like that tagine that I mentioned, you know, having, you know, the seared protein at the beginning is going to add so much depth to the sauce and the broth that originate that sorry comes right after so i read this book called uh, salt fat acid heat yes. have you ever read that <laughs> yes yeah. it's wonderful it is a great book because it's even if you don't read it and when I say I read it, I skimmed it, but it was really about the fact that it's so good because it's like when something doesn't taste right, it's so good because you go, okay, did I, does it need more salt? Does it need fat? Does it need acid? Does it need heat? And so a friend of mine, I, I went over to her house and I make an incredible spaghetti meat sauce. Everybody <laughs> like goes nuts about it. It's not really that amazing, but somehow <laughs> it, everybody just goes crazy, crazy. And it's it's pretty good. But so anyway, I tasted her meat sauce and I'm like, okay, let's literally, let's first add some salt. Mm -hmm. Then even though she had meat in there, I added a little bit of olive oil for the fat. Mm -hmm. the, it already had a lot of acid because... Tomatoes are tomatoes. acidic, mm -hmm. so it didn't need more acid. But then I add some crushed red pepper, and then I added um, a little bit of sh brown sugar mm -hmm. to kind of because because tomatoes are so acidic that adding that sugar kind of balances it a little mm -hmm. bit. And so adding those four ingredients just literally made it into night and day difference of of yeah. what that was like. 
I'd say most home cooks try adding salt first. Like you don't realize restaurants, how much salt is added. And then people at home are like, why does my food taste dull? And you know, there's nothing, people are afraid of sodium, but if you get, you know, really great sea salt or pink Himalayan salt, you know, there's a lot of minerals and nutrients in there too. So, um, if you start with good ingredients, you shouldn't be kind of afraid of adding more. Yeah. And, you know, using non-iodized salt, like Mm -hmm. you said, is so, so important. We don't, I don't like to have it in our house uh, really at all, but you know, you want to taste the saltiness after it's dissolved too, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people will put it in there and then it hasn't had a chance and then they just keep putting more and then they might put more. But I think salt reduces bitterness too. Yeah, definitely. So what other tips would you say? So number one, obviously we want diet. We've got to get your book. We got to get some of these going, but what other things do you suggest if someone thinks they do have SIBO? Yeah. So I think meal spacing really is key. A lot of people do do intermittent fasting. Um, but in thinking about the migrating motor complex, just making sure that even during like your eating window, that you're not constantly snacking, even on something really healthy, like an almond or a carrot stick every 30 minutes. If you think about it, your migrating motor complex is just not going to kick into gear in the same way as if you leave yourself, you know, three to four hours between meals and, you know, per intermittent fasting and the lessons in that, I would also say eating earlier before bedtime is so important because, you know, our digestive system slows down at night. And if you eat too close to bedtime and you have that food just still sitting in your intestines, when you go horizontal, um, that's, you know, going to create more of a, (laughs) of a breeding ground for SIBO. Um, you know, I think for ladies, you know, not wearing tight pants all of the time, if you know, especially if you notice that you have digestive issues, I can't tell you how many times I've been like racking my brain for what I've eaten at a certain meal and being like, what ingredients set me off? And then having the conclusion like a few weeks later after repeat experiences that it was actually like the pants I was wearing that was causing the issues, just compressing your intestines in a way that, you know, turns a four lane high highway into a two lane highway. Um, hydration, I think is super important, um, for everything involving your bowels, especially if you have IBS issues, like, and you're not going to the bathroom, um, in an optimal way, either drinking more to kind of grease the wheels of your digestive system or drinking more because of the liquids you're losing in the toilet is so important. Um, let's see what else chewing your food. Oh yes. The most basic. I think that's Mm -hmm. the one that most people forget about. And if you just make one change tomorrow, just like focus on it for a week. If you like add time onto your meal by making sure to chew every bite into liquid, I guarantee that your symptoms will be partially improved. Hey guys, I'd love for you guys to listen to a podcast that we did about the side effects from wine and the differences between natural wine and traditional wine. So go to ChantelRayway.com slash wine and you'll see transcripts, you'll see some different episodes, but here's the thing. You can get your penny bottle now of dry farm wines and make the decision that if you're going to have wine to make sure you have the most natural, healthy wine in the world with no added only natural ingredients. All the other wines out there have so much sulfate, so much sugar. Why put that poison in your body? So get your penny bottle now at ChantelRayWay.com slash wine. 
Yeah, I also want you to talk a little bit about the, you had originally talked about in your stomach acid being low and that's oh, yeah. a major problem. How do you increase your stomach acid? What are some tips to do that? Yeah, so you can do it with supplementation. So with an with an HCL or pepsin supplement, and there's kind of a trick to you know leveling up, figuring out what kind of your optimal dose is. Um, and you can just take you know one pill. They're all kind of calibrated differently depending on the brand, and see what it does for you. And then at the next meal, maybe you take two and see what that does for you. And you kind of can find your your perfect little tipping point before you start to get any reflux symptoms. Um, but that would be number one. And then if you don't want to actually go the supplement route, you can just dissolve a little bit of apple cider vinegar or lemon juice in some water and drink that 15 minutes before a meal. And that just kind of gets things churning. I will also say the great, the gut brain connection is so important when it comes to stomach acid, making sure that you're really dropped into your rest and digest mode, which then, you know, will kind of signal to the rest of your digestive system downstream that it's time to get that stomach acid churning. It's time to, you know, um, get those digestive enzymes pumping into the small intestine. Um, so I think actually, um, sitting down before a meal, you don't have to say grace, but having some sort of transitional moment, um, to just drop in and ground yourself and, you know, mentally prepare for what you're about to do. Um, that can be really good for your stomach acid as well. So one of my worst qualities is slowing down and chewing my food. <laughs> and so it's awful and it's, it's gotten a lot better, but it's not where it needs to be. And so I have to remind myself of all the benefits of it. So I constantly say to myself, okay, Chantel, number one, you're going to absorb more nutrients and energy mm -hmm. from your food. You're going to be able to eat less. Yep. Your food gets more exposure to your saliva, which it needs to for digestion. Mm -hmm. And easier digestion leads to less bloat and less excess bacteria lingering in your intestines. So it's almost like a self-talk that you have to do with yourself to say, this is, it's so important. And I don't think people really understand how important it is. And so it's like, you know, listening to podcasts like this to saying, okay, like chewing my food, chewing your food 30 times before swallowing is painful for it's me hard. to do. It's so hard to do, but it's one of those things that if you constantly keep listening to these reminders and, you know, taking some deep breaths and putting your fork down and smelling your food, you know, like smelling your food, they say actually switches your mm -hmm. salivary glands mm -hmm. and gets your stomach ready for the meal that you're going to enjoy. That's why cooking is, you know, part of the equation. You're mm. tasting, you're smelling, you're kind of preparing yourself in small little ways. Mm. Well, this has been amazing. Tell listeners where they can find you and where they can follow you. Yes. So my website's feedmephoebe.com. You can find tons of free recipes and SIBO resources there. Also linked to my podcast, which is also called SIBO Made Simple. And then for the SIBO Made Simple book, you can go to SIBOMadeSimple.com. And I also have a course and my last book, which is all about Hashimoto's thyroiditis. That's at thewellnessproject.com. Love it. Well, thanks so much for being with us and you stay tuned. We've got another episode coming up in just a few. Bye-bye for now. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.